This is Rumble Strip. I'm Erica Heilman. Today I am running a show I made years and years ago. It's one of my favorite shows. Um, I'm working currently on a show that's going to take some time to figure out. I'll be back as soon as I can, but in the meantime, I hope that you will enjoy the defense. Welcome. I dreamed about it. I dreamed about the trial. Dreamed about, you know, neuroscience, neuropathology. <laughs> you know, and then, uh, and, and the prospect of trying another one at that point was so exhausting as to make me want to go sell cars or something. But then, you know, something happens and you read a case and you're like, oh, cops did something ridiculous and pisses you off and you're like, or the other side's being unreasonable and will not settle a case. And it's like, well, we're back to it. So in a couple of weeks, I'll be back to it. <laughs> That's Dan Seeden. He's a defense attorney in Chelsea, Vermont. People love defense attorneys if they think the defendants are innocent. People love to hate defense attorneys if they think the defendants are guilty. There are five attorneys in this show, and I worked for all of them as a private investigator, and even I wondered how they do this job. Defense attorneys spend all day thinking about crime, crafting a story about the crime, imagining the feeling and the logic and the moment of the crime, and then going home for dinner. One defense attorney friend of mine told me she'd spent the day in jail talking with her client about a fatal stabbing. That night she was at a party listening to someone talk about artisanal cheese. The cognitive dissonance can get pretty loud. So it requires passion to get into this work and maybe a little dysfunction to keep doing it. This is a show about the people who do the dark and sometimes funny and consuming work of standing with the accused. Chapter one, how do you do it? Criminal defense is about the value of one person. I gave a talk to the Rotary Club not too long ago. You know, they invited me and they, they thought I was going to be like chum, right? <laughs> you know, beat me up. I came in, I said, look, I'm not apologizing for these values. These are core original values. You want to talk about the United States of America? Talk about the Bill of Rights. Criminal defense is the Bill of Rights. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Right to a jury trial. The burden of proof will always be on the government. The right against self-incrimination. I'm not going to go out and justify what I do. You'd have to justify anything other than what I do. Uh, I'll tell you, I won the Rotary Club over. What really got me into public defense was kind of an interest in representing poor people and not just indigent criminal defendants. It was kind of issues of poverty and inequality and police oppression. So what I wanted to do was provide the most uh, aggressive, competent defense for people with no money as we could provide. And the odds are stacked against you. Juries don't like criminal defendants. There's a presumption of guilt. Most clients are not middle class, don't present well in court, don't look great in court. And they're facing middle class, suspicious juries who know that they're there because they did something wrong. The juries don't trust the defense attorneys a lot. So, you, you know, you can win, and we do win. But more often than not, we lose. This is attorney Scott Williams. Uh, I was a first-year public defender in Philadelphia, and my wife was a, um, you know, an associate at a big law firm, and we went to the Christmas party that year, and, you know, literally 
I, you know, I could not make this up. The partner in the, you know, $1,500 Seville Row suit, carrying a snifter of brandy and smoking a cigar. And I get introduced and my wife says, you know, this is Scott and he works and the, and the lawyer says, oh, you work at the public defender's office. How can you represent those people? Right. And, and I, <laughs> I don't even remember exactly what I said. I know it caused, uh, quite a kerfuffle at my wife's office for a period of time because of how I spoke to him. But I basically said something effective. Did you go to law school? Because the constitution is this thing that we're supposed to protect all lawyers. It doesn't matter whether you're a corporate lawyer or what, you're supposed to protect the constitution. I think I'm doing that. This is attorney Carrie DeWolf. It was this unbelievably complicated story. It ended up being self-defense and she, it was, she was acquitted, but it was this complicated story set in the housing projects in Cleveland of people who had no sense of time or place or date or anything that, the inability to tell any kind of linear story. And it was an insight into a whole different world that there were people that it didn't, didn't know and it didn't matter whether it was five in the morning, five in the afternoon, whether it was January. You know, you'd ask questions, was it before or after Christmas? You know, was there snow on the ground? Because they had no they just weren't living in the kind of linear world that I was living in. And it just gave me much greater in, insight into the people that I would then spend the next 30 years of my life defending, that their lack of resources could be so deep. <laughs> this is attorney Kelly Green. I am driven to keeping the government out of the private citizen's life unnecessarily. That is what gets me up in the morning. I don't see myself as a social worker. I don't see myself as, um, you know, doing some kind of client service like uh, a hairdresser. I'm not, you know, necessarily, I don't really see myself that way. What I see myself is like a, a check on government power. So I get a case, I evaluate it. Um, you know, can the government interfere in this person's life? It's not for everybody. Sometimes, this is another one of my cocktail party things, well, if you had to be one or the other, would you be a prosecutor or a defense lawyer? And people always know, even if they don't want to, you know, even if they haven't thought about it before, there, there's, I think, people that aren't lawyers, if you ask them that question, they would, they almost always have an answer pretty quickly. It's, there's very few people that do both, very, very few. You're one or the other. I think there's just some personality forces at play for defense lawyers. We can't, we're not representing the state. You know, we're not the people that are president of the Chamber of Commerce. This is attorney Richard Rubin. You know, there's a, the, the world is full of horrible, violent, terrible things. People are, you know, getting run over by cars and dying in fires and killed in wars. I mean, people are getting cancer. There's, crap, miserable shit happening all over the place. So if this particular guy who robbed a bank happens to get off, I don't care. I personally don't care. I don't care because I bond with this person, you know? I mean, if, if it's someone else's client, you know, and I'm reading about it in the paper, I get like, what the hell is that, right? But my client, I'm okay with that. I don't have any problem with that. It, it, I don't have a conscience issue with that. I mean, I go to somewhere and I say to my doctor, who's like, you know, who asked me that question, how do you do that in his own way? 
And I'll say, you know, someone comes in who's just shot his wife 17 times and he's got a knife wound that his wife has put in his chest before she died. And you're in there trying to save this guy's life. You don't, you know, you don't sit there and say, well, how can I, uh, def- you know, save this guy's life? He's just murdered and, you know, murdered his wife. You just go and save the life because you have an ethical obligation and you just, that's what you do. So, you know, you don't agonize about the moral state of the person you're trying to help. Well, I don't either. And, you know, people who do really violent things, they're usually nice to their lawyers. The State of Vermont versus Justin Melville. My first trial, State versus Justin Melville. It was in December. It was in the middle of a snowstorm. My client had been charged with um, simple assault. And he was this big guy, big bruiser guy. And he had, um, he had been, he had been in some tiff with his friend, his buddy, and had, and had driven to the buddy's house, gotten out, they got into a fist fight, and my client uh, punched his buddy in the mouth and, and, and knocked his teeth out. Well, my case, I lost. It was <laughs> abject failure. But here's the scene for you. We're in this 19th century courthouse. There's a blizzard. It's a one-day trial. It's early December. It's hunting season. So during the lunch break, Justin says, I'm going to go get some hunting in. (laughs) And I'm like, no, dude, you can't do that. Because this is a crime of violence. And you can't be seen by the jury pool out there with a gun. And Chelsea's really small. There's no place to have lunch. Like, it's not like he'd go out of the courthouse and not be seen with a gun and his buddy, right? And I'm like, no, you can't do it. And he was like, no, I got to do it. You know, it's hunting season. There's only so many days. I got, you know, it's like daylight and there's snow. So he goes out. And don't you know, he drives down 110 and he gets out of his car and he sees a deer and him and his buddy trek through this field and shoot and kill the deer. And he drags the bloody deer back through the field. He's in his shirt and tie. He's got a shirt and tie on and some like dockers. And they drive and they're driving this jalopy. They're driving this like 1986 sedan of some sort. And they load the bloody deer into the trunk and they drive back to the courthouse. They're gone exactly 50 minutes. As all the jurors are coming back in, he's all rumpled and muddy and wet and a little bloody and the deer's hanging out of the back. And we go in and we finish the trial and um, I lose and he couldn't care less. He got his deer. The judge, she might have held him in jail, you know, because he had just lost a trial and maybe there was a little bit of jail time that was going to follow and she could have just put him in jail right, right there on the spot until the sentencing. But because he got that deer, she let him go so he could gut his deer. Chapter 2, The Client. I represented a guy in Philadelphia, and, um, you know, I went into the interview room at the prison with him, and we were on this, you know, not particularly secure hallway, which is how we met with the clients. And I was still fairly new to the job, and um, this guy, not a a very small guy either, um, decided to toy with me, basically. And he was a killer and a shooter and a drug dealer. And, um, you know, he was trying to get me nervous. And 
eventually he, he you know he saw me look at the panic button on the wall and he said you know what are you gonna do bitch you gonna you gonna hit the panic button and I looked at him I said no first I'm gonna stab you in the neck with my pen then I'm gonna hit the panic button and he looked at me and then he laughed and then we both had a good laugh we worked very well together but I literally had to threaten to kill him with a pen and and have him believe that it was at least a plausible possibility in order for us to have a decent working relationship. I almost, you know, I almost always end up liking my clients or finding something about them that I, I like. When you really get to know somebody or get to understand their life, I mean, clients aren't defined by their worst moments, right? Nobody is defined by their best moments or their worst moments. And that's no different for people that are charged with criminal offenses, right? Um, just because even if they've done this thing, that doesn't define them. That's not their life. That's not who they are. They're much more complicated. You know, they're full human beings, right? Who one little piece of them maybe did or didn't do this this thing, which may or may not be bad. Somewhere between terrible and what? That's a crime. So it's either you fundamentally like people or you fundamentally don't. I guess I fundamentally like people. My clients are people just because they happen to have been charged with a criminal offense. That doesn't change that they're people. Some of them I just hate, and they hate me, maybe. I don't know. I, I, I try to be likable, but some of my clients don't also try to be likable. <laughs> you know? Like, it's not actually a two-way street. Like, I'm so nice to that guy, and he just hates me anyway. Some of my clients I love, and some of them, some of them I love just because they're so naughty, and they just do the funniest, craziest things, and I kind of want to do those things, too, and I'm sort of envious. So it's I, I experience this broad range of, of relationships and feelings about my clients. I know that I don't like to like my clients too much because you're back to that sleepless night. Um, you really like someone. You don't want them. Jail is a horrible place. I got to tell you, very few people ought to be incarcerated. There are certainly some, but not the numbers we send. And... For the routine cases that I that we see every day, day in and day out, jail shouldn't be part of that. I don't care who that person is; it's inhumane. So, when you really like someone, even if even if you know the evidence of their guilt is great and they're sort of distasteful, boy, sending them to jail is hard. It's really hard. I had a client. It was actually the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. He called me up one day just in some jam because, you know, it's always the same ingredients. It's like whatever their level of substance abuse is these days and their level of poverty and, you know, their level of relationship dysfunction and <laughs> the status of their license leads to jams. You know, it leads to jams. And so I just talked to this guy and I'm like, I don't, you know, we just talk it out. And he didn't ultimately need a lawyer at all. You know, he just figured out the next couple steps. And he's like, Dan, you know, he's like. I'm always able to call you and like, you're there for me. And he goes, you've never hung up the phone on me. And he goes, you're like my big brother. He goes, you're like my big brother. who I can always count on like, you'll look out for me. And he goes, I really, really appreciate that. And I thought that was very nice. And that, and that is an apt description of how I try to practice law. I had a client once who tried to drown himself in the holding cell toilet by just putting his head in the holding cell toilet at the courthouse, you know? And they dragged him out and they dragged him onto the floor and they were gonna tase him. And I got I got down on the floor with that guy and put my hand on his back and his 
his toilet head was dripping all over my suit. You know, transactional lawyers are like doing title searches and I don't, I get in, I've had to get into people's faces and, you know, yell and scream and point my finger and my, I, I, but maybe there are passionate transactional lawyers. I don't know, but I know that like all my stuff comes right out. It's right out there. It's right out there for everybody to see. It makes me vulnerable in some ways and it's all right out there. I don't think that the bank's real estate lawyer unleashes those deeply personal parts of his soul in the practice of his job. I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. To me, everything else is just about money. This is the only, uh, this is, I can't imagine doing real estate work or shuffling papers in some kind of transactional practice. Your only loyalty, your only duty is is to that client. So there's a certain freedom in that. It, but, th- but the biggest part is that you're making a difference in a person's life. This is a real person with a real issue who needs your help. This isn't some abstract like I said, everything else turns out just to be about money. This is about a person's life. When I see people who stand next to their clients and you see by their body language that they don't like their clients, you know, they're kind of advocating for someone at a sentencing and their body language is their bodies are turned 20 degrees away from them. And the message they're sending was, is, uh, I don't like this person. I can't stand that. I can't, I can't stand that. When I see former prosecutors, guys who were DAs or assistant U.S. attorneys, they kind of age out of that job and they go in to make more money. And these are the fancy ones in, in rep- doing criminal defense. I don't, I don't trust it because I don't feel like they have the, uh, the passion. You know, it takes a, it takes a passion. It, it really takes a passion to do this. The state of Vermont versus Clifford Messier. So Clifford Messier was a young man up in Orleans County who worked at the Ethan Allen Furniture Mill. And he, at age 16, married a 13-year-old woman, and he was obsessed with her. I mean, he was had a dependent personality disorder. He was totally obsessed with her. And as, of course, she got older, she was completely trapped in this relationship. And they had a child, and then they had another child. So by the time she was 17, I think she had two children, and she started to mess around and go out with other guys and and Clifford who was weak and dependent and and spent more on his car payments than he did on his rent would always take her back but one time she met this guy named Lucian Blodgett and she decided that she would she was going to leave him this was it he was like 21 she was 17 18 at the time so and this time she's going to take the kids with her so it was going to happen on a particular Sunday and Saturday night. He says to her, can we go out to the to the dance at the Elks Club? There's a dance and one last night to go out together. And she said, oh, shit, all right. So, I'll, so they went out and they danced and they get back and it's 1130 or 12 at night and they're in bed and Lucian calls and says, where the hell are you? You know, you were supposed to con- call me so I know what time you're going to meet me tomorrow. And Clifford is lying in bed and he says, don't be talking to him. And Caroline says, shut up, and slaps him. And Clifford goes downstairs. He gets the gun, 
The bullets are in one in the closet. He gets the gun. He loads the gun. He gets in his Camaro. He drives a half a mile down to Orleans Center, gets out. Lucian is on the phone at a pay booth, at a pay phone, talking to Caroline. He says, I got to get off the phone. Clifford's here. Clifford takes the gun out, lays it across the top of his car, and shoots Lucian dead in the head. And then he goes, and he goes back to the house, and he says to he says to Caroline, I just shot Lucian. And she, of course, goes nuts. And then he goes to a friend's house, an older man's house, and sits there and waits till the cops come and arrest him. So he's charged with first-degree murder because he, he got the gun and he went out and he intentionally you know, shot the lover. Sounds like a fairly clean case of first-degree murder. Well, our job was to tell a different story. It had to be a different narrative. The narrative was he couldn't help himself. He was mentally ill. He was a dependent personality disorder. The thought of Caroline leaving him made it impossible for him to do anything other than what he did, and he was less culpable, and he was the defense was insanity, that he was mentally ill, and that he couldn't conform his conduct to the requirements of the law. So we had to get a psychiatrist to come and interview him and develop this whole narrative of who he was, who she was, what their relationship was, who their family members were. We had to get Caroline to switch sides, in other words, to become, because she was the witness. It was her story as well as his, so she had to step up. And she did. She stepped up and explained how poor Clifford was a dependent, you know, this was poor Clifford. So we were able to tell this story to the jury, and the story of the trial was wonderful. And it told that we had 11 French Canadian women and one guy who was basically not playing any role. And they just embraced Clifford's story. The psychiatrists got up there and they, they described what happened and how he couldn't help himself. And he went into a fugue state after he was slapped. and became psychotic, temporarily psychotic, and he couldn't help but relieve this pain. It was like a, a knife in his head that he had to remove. And So we had the trial, and uh, we never expected to win entirely, but the jury came back with manslaughter. The judge ultimately gave Clifford two years to serve. He'd already been in about six months, so he had to serve another 18 months. He allowed him to serve his sentence in the county jail in Newport, go to work during the day, come back after work to serve his sentence at the jail, and then he gave him Sunday afternoons off to spend with his children. And um, so it was a victory, but he was convicted. And it was the right decision, you know, from my point of view. <laughs> of course, <laughs> I mean, the jury got it right. You want to have juries? They find people not guilty? Screw you. The jury's right. You know? You know, wait till you're charged with a crime, you know, and the jury finds you not guilty. Then, then you won't be so cynical about what juries do. You know, when my client gets a good deal, especially in, from a jury, I say, great, because most juries are in there ready to convict. I mean, that's, they're there like, okay, what did this guy do? Chapter 3, The Trial. Uh, a trial is a trial of the state's evidence. The state's evidence will be tried and either found sufficient or insufficient. That is what's on trial. Not this poor bastard that you dragged in here. 
guilty though he may be in the eyes of God, we are not here to be God. We're here to judge the state's evidence. The burden of proof is always on the government. It has brought a charge, and the proposition is we can prove that. I'm here to see if you can. My thing is not to wrap my arms around the defendant and give him a big sloppy kiss and say, acquit the defendant because the defendant's a good guy, or the defendant's misunderstood, you know, or the defendant's innocent, like your mother would understand the word innocent. I don't do that. I don't move in with my defendants. I don't, you know, because a lot of times that's not going to work. They're not good guys. They've done a lot of bad things. And maybe they did this thing. I don't know. All I care about is the state's proof. It has the government proven its charge. Period. I feel abject terror right before I get to the courthouse to do an opening statement in a case. Abject terror. Like I'm nervous. I'm sweaty. I am trying to remember my script that I've set for myself. Remember to say this, remember to say that, do this point, that point, do it in this order, and you're you're pretty tense. This is, and there's some women issues that play in this in terms of how I dress, trying to always err on the side of being more professional. I'm not going to go in and say women should be able to dress any way they want to talk. I mean, I might think that, but the, real, but the reality is I want to go in as a woman and be taken seriously. So I'm conscious of my dress, my you know, physical appearance, my voice, how I use my hands, minimal, minimal gesturing. But yeah, I'm absolutely aware of all of those things. I want to dominate my space. I want to touch my client. I always touch my clients. I've, in fact, I've volunteered to touch some really bad people for other people. <laughs> you just want a woman to touch your client, I'll do it. One of the things you learn as a defense attorney is that you don't hold many cards. And if you want to be angry at the person and disrespect the person who has the power, you're a fool. Uh, I love the state's attorney. I'm always nice to the state's attorney or the judge who has the power. I, I find people who let their egos or their judgments get in the way of their work are bad lawyers. If you're going to get angry at a state's attorney because you think he's stupid or narrow-minded or right-wing, you're a fool for a lawyer. I mean, you can think what you want, but you need to treat people with respect and honesty and integrity and respect their offices because they'll fuck you if you don't. <laughs> That's what they'll do because they'll pick it up in a second. There certainly are moments where, where things go south, um, where, you know, a witness takes an unexpected turn or you, you flub something up. Um, or they get the best of you, you know, or your client does something that throws you a curveball. And those moments used to just about kill me, I think. And I think I more than once went home and cried in the middle of a trial uh, and just sat there feeling like I was going to die. Um, but now experience tells me you can, you can manage. And the main way you manage is you just keep calm. You keep your game face on. They don't even know when they've scored points. You know, you never give anything away. It's like burden of proof remains with you. And I don't care if you think you're having a good day. You're not having a good day. You'll see. Like uh, many trial attorneys, I have a hard time admitting mistakes or I've, I become hostile when I'm confronted with my errors. Um, but when you execute a trial, 
you are on the whole time and you have to confidently make decisions. And man, people win and lose based on those decisions. And so you have to kind of confidently stand by them or you can't, you'd, you'd cave out there. You'd be eaten alive. But we make mistakes all the time, all the time, every day. But you have to brush them off. Keep going. Obviously, when you're in the courtroom, you have to take control. You can't be somebody that's pushed around. You have to, I mean, the judges, I think, mostly respected me because I was generally prepared and I had all the background sort of skills. I knew the rules. I knew they knew my cases. But you have to go in with a certain confidence and a sense of I'm right or I have a I have a plan. I have an idea. I have a I have something to say, whatever it was. I have something to say that's important and fundamentally correct in some way. I mean, you have to go in with that sort of um, you can't go in being kind of apologetic. Chapter three, the trial. It's like putting on a play. It, it is, it's theater. It, it, you're telling a story. It's a narrative that you're trying to create an impression in a story through the witnesses, through your presentation, and mainly through the witnesses and the whole gestalt of the trial. So if you were going to put on My Fair Lady on Broadway, you, you, you'd need more than one rehearsal, right? So it's, you, you need to have a script and a narrative and work with the players that are available to you to tell the story. So that starts at the very first moment you get the case. You really need to know what's, who the players are, what happened, what variations on stories you can tell. You've spent, in any complicated case, at least a year with the file, right? You know a million little tidbits, little pieces of this and that. You know, I'm not thinking I'm exaggerating. Sometimes it's just a phenomenal number of little pieces. So it's sort of shedding the ones that aren't important and focusing on what are, so that's just it. It's like, how can you get this down to some manageable thing that it, where a jury's going to understand and retain the critical pieces? You could just imagine a three-day trial with 20 witnesses or any experience you've had personally where you've been somewhere at a meeting for three hours. You don't remember what anybody said. Maybe if you've taken notes, you might remember. But, you know, at the end of the meeting, you, you just kind of remember that John Smith was smart, Susie was good-looking, you know, Harry was an idiot, John, I can't believe a thing he had to say because he was a jerk and was pompous. Um, you know, this witness was, was this, this guy was argumentative and, you know, and stupid. Someone else was uh, sophisticated and, and lovely and intelligent and talking, talked in complete sentences, and I'd like to spend more time with him. At, but the end of it, you kind of have like this, there's been a consensus reached about wh what, what the group is going to do or what, you know, where the next meeting is going to be. But you kind of don't remember who or why or how it got there. Same thing as with the trial. You know, when the trial ends, there's kind of like, oh, well, what are we going to do here? Uh, yeah, well, okay, I guess he didn't really mean to kill him. Or I guess, you know, he, he uh, couldn't help himself. Or maybe the victim deserved it. Or, you know, something, whatever the theme is, if you've done it right, that's what ends up happening. So your role is kind of as the conductor. And if you can be relaxed, and honest and open with the jurors and not, they could see 
bullshit. People see bullshit. They don't even know they're seeing bullshit, but the group of 12 people has a very high bullshit meter. You, know, you, go, to, you go to Dixie's Cafe in, in Chelsea today and go in there as a stranger, right? These are not real, like, outwardly warm and effusive people. These are taciturn, classic northern New England Vermonters, right? Reserved, some don't say even a whole lot. But at the same time, there's a degree of honesty there, right? So like the first time you, know, you go up to pick a jury in Orange County, guess what? It's Dixie's, except there's like 24 of them, right? No smiles. You can't approach people like that with bullshit. One of the things they train you is to you think like a lawyer. And you begin to speak like a frigging lawyer. <laughs> and you act like a goddamn lawyer. Well, of course, that's really damaging in the courtroom. You, you start acting like a lawyer. People think you're an idiot. They don't like you. You have to use to tell people to use words with Anglo-Saxon roots and not Latin roots. So, you know, you don't communicate with people. You talk with people. And you don't, uh, you know, you, you don't talk in the passive voice. And you, you talk English and not Latin. The process for me over 21 years has been to lose any sense of artifice, to remove any barrier between me speaking to the jury directly from my heart, and it's not always articulate. I, 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 I can stumble over my words. Sometimes I stammer. Sometimes I make no sense. But I want to speak to the jury with the urgency and, and, and from a place of truth that I feel and with the desperation that I feel, you know, and the weight that I feel. I want the jury to feel that. There's no part of what I do anymore that's a put on. The State of Vermont versus Skip Godfrey. Skip Godfrey was a great, um, that was a great case, obviously, Patricia Scoville. I mean, it was, um, Patricia Scoville was a young woman who had moved to Vermont, moved to Stowe from Boston, and she'd only been here about three weeks. And she was discovered murdered at the Moss Glen Falls in Stowe. And there were no suspects. DNA testing was in its infancy, if it existed at all. So they took swabs from her body and tested them and developed a profile of an unknown male. But they had no suspects in the killing. Well, her parents lobbied the state to develop the DNA database to become part of the CODIS system. In other words, they, changed, they literally got the legislature to develop, to pass the law whereby convicted felons are routinely swabbed and their DNA is entered into the DNA CODIS database so that when they have an unsolved case like this where there's a DNA profile of an unknown male, they can run it against all the felons in the United States that have submitted DNA samples and see if they find a perpetrator. And that is, in fact, how Howard Godfrey was identified as the perpetrator. Some years later, he committed another crime. His DNA was taken. It was run through the CODA, the system that her parents had been the instigators behind the legislation to set it all up, and there was a cold hit, and it came back with Howard Godfrey's DNA. I was his fourth or fifth lawyer. <laughs> so uh, my main goal at that first meeting was to assure him that I was on his case, that I was there to represent him zealously. So that would have been my first meeting, and I don't specifically remember it. Well, I kind of do, because I wasn't sure what he would be like at all. And what I recall about him was just that he was very quiet, 
thoughtful. He was obviously an intelligent man. You never know what your client's going to be like. Um, I was struck by his quiet thoughtfulness. He didn't say much. That's kind of what I remember. Four other attorneys had touched the file. By the time I came to it, 33 banker's boxes were delivered to my office by the state of Vermont. And I had to go through all of them and figure out what the evidence was. Who did I want to depose? There were, I don't know, 500 people on the state's witness list. It was a huge logistical under... I mean, it just doesn't come to you in this neat notebook. In fact, they, to the extent the state had any notebooks, those were all organized the way some police detective thought they should be organized. That was not helpful to me particularly. I, I, it felt really overwhelming. There are times I felt overwhelmed and my stress levels were just off the charts. But I don't know, Some somehow you just... Go to the well again and figure out how you're gonna how you're gonna do it. Eventually, the case kind of took shape, and I got it into a place where I had a defense theory. I had a case I could try. And just in the course of preparation of any case, you obviously you look at the background of the victim, and you know you take a long, hard look at at a lot of at a lot of things. And um, at trial, I was zealously representing Skip Godfrey. He was convicted. And Patricia's parents were there through the whole thing. And at this point in time, they were probably in their late 70s. You know, a lot, a long time had gone by. And that, you know, I'm pretty focused on what I'm doing, but obviously it's hard to to not know, you know, not notice something like her parents there. And um, while the jury was out, they came up to me and they shook my hand and they thanked me for doing such a good job, that they were really pleased that the system was working so well that they could feel like true justice was done because a vigorous defense had been presented. And I and I I thanked them. I started to, to you know get a little choked up. This, and I said, well, you know, thank you so much for saying that. It, it means a lot to me. And I said, I, I just really don't know what to say. And her mother took my hand in her hands and said, you don't have to say anything. And that was the, I'm not sure I'll ever have much more of a moving experience than that. You know, their loss is is hard to fathom as a mother. And their ability to act with such grace and such um, support for me and what I was doing was just, that was a truly moving moment. (laughs) Chapter four, the art of cross-examination. That's the drama. That's our whole justice system is based, you know, that's, first off, that's what people want to see. They want to see good cross-examination. That's where the truth comes out. That's where you build your case. That's where you set it up. You set up your cross-examination. Then there's the moment you pull the tr- string on the trap and the, the blade falls and you've scored your point and everybody knows you've scored your point. That's the best. Courtesy. Extend every courtesy to the court, every courtesy to your opponent be like your mama taught you to be, you know, on your best manners. And with most witnesses, remember, most witnesses don't have a dog in this fight. It's just someone who got dragged into this or wrote a statement or something. Or, you know, I mean, they they know something or think they know something. You don't need to beat every witness up. And it becomes actually like the barking dog that doesn't stop barking. The people tune it out. So I I go about things fairly soft-spoken, very courteous, very polite. Until 
<laughs> there's always those couple of witnesses that now I'm going to put the black hat on this guy and you're going to forgive me for this but I'm going to take his fucking head off so watch this people have said about cross-examinations the jurors only consider one thing who won was it the lawyer or the witness so you know the state puts on a ballistics guy that's maybe not a great example the state is going to put on some accident reconstruction person who's going to explain in a kind of mushy science how something happened. Your job is to make the person look like an idiot, right? They don't, they, you know, like he doesn't know what he's doing or he's got an ax to grind or he's a biased or he's sloppy or he didn't do the job or he's, you know. So at the end of this hour-long cross-examination, the jurors conclude this guy's a jerk. This guy's didn't do his job. And that's the art of cross-examination. It's to control the witness and in the nicest of ways, right? And it's like, you know, you don't, you don't. No one likes the lawyer to be a bully either. So, you know, you have to be nice and pleasant and clear and direct. And at the end of it, uh, if you've been able to control the witness, the guy looks like an idiot. The State of Vermont versus Peggy Stevens. Uh, I, I was assigned to represent this lady named Peggy Stevens. It was a very splashy headline type case. A bunch of animal rights investigators and state officials went on her property and seized like 110 animals. Cats and dogs, and they seized a horse, and I don't know what else. Guinea pigs, all these animals, right? And I made the point in court. I was in court one day, and I thought I was real smart. And I was like, Judge, they have charged her in one count with abusing 99 animals. I don't think they can do that. And the judge is like, I think you're right. And the prosecutor's like, you are right. And the next day there was 99 counts. <laughs> so my, my client's exposure went from like one year to 99 years. And I was like, okay, well now that that's done, let's schedule the trial. <laughs> so we, we proceed to trial. And um, what I learned was this is a situation where basically this group of wealthy Woodstock women, in their spare time, fashioned themselves animal investigators. They cared about animals, good for them, and they'd go out and investigate. And they went out and started investigating her. She was a, you know, kind of lost soul, but her animals were her life. She spent her every moment caring for those animals. And frankly, those animals lived as well as she lived. They were her friends. They were her family. And that was like the truth of the case. And once I realized that, I said, well, there's just no way she could be convicted, right? So every day there was this group of activists there, these animal activists from Woodstock, filling the courtroom. Some days they picketed outside of the courthouse and would hiss at me when I came in with my tiny little frightened client who was so scared she'd shake. When they, when everyone likes to be on the winning side, and they really thought they were on the winning side. So her lead tormentor, whose name I will not mention, testified. And in the process of cross-examining her, I'm looking at these photographs. Each animal they seized, this woman posed with the animal, right? You know, little cat or a little dog. And I'm like, looking at the photograph, so I'm cross-examining her, I'm like, uh, Miss So-and-so, what is that? And she's like, what? And I brought her the photograph. I said, that. And she said, what? And I said, there, on your denim jumper. What is that? And she goes, um, <clears throat> that is it. A badge? I said, a badge. What type of badge would that be? 
is that a badge issued by some recognized government authority? She's like, no. And now I knew, you know, you could just smell it. You know when you have blood in the water. And I'm like, well, where did you get this badge that you put on your denim jumper before you trespassed on my client's property and took, and took her animals? Where'd you get that? And she goes, I got it by mail. And I said, you got it by mail? I said, what does that badge say? Do you have it on you today? And she goes, yes, I do. It was like certified animal investigator. I said, so you bought yourself a badge. Well, all the air went out of their case and she, she was in tears, you know. So anyway, the day ended. All the animal activists are just in the audience looking at me like stunned with mixture of hatred and fear, you know. And uh, judge left the bench. And I did this thing. I was a young kid. I jumped up on the defense table in front of all of them. And I beat my chest. <laughs> and I was like... I'm winning this thing. And uh, she was acquitted on all counts except one, which was the horse. The horse had overgrown hooves and I had no excuse. So she was convicted on one count. But it was largely considered a, a massive win, you know, and it was just... And by the end, of course, everyone likes a winner. So in the end, everyone's like, wow, you know, she's really... She loved her animals. And those women are so evil from Woodstock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just the difference between winning and losing, you know. Chapter 5, Vermont. I love Vermont, and I love it for its natural beauty. I love the land. Uh, I also understand that it's way deeper and darker than the land. Way It's just, it's not just Vermont life and Shelburne and, and places like that. It's just, it's not like that. And it's not who the people are. The people are not... There's a, you know, there's 20% of the people listen to VPR. But most people are not listening to VPR, and they're, they're just going to work underpaid and uh, doing their thing and going to public schools and, and going to high school basketball games and getting by. Out here in this very rural, isolated, beautiful part of the state, there's a David Lynch quality, which is, you know, you can always peel back a corner of this place and find some darkness. I mean, I was the public defender in Orange County for 15 years. I would walk down the street, and I knew. You know, I'd see the people, and I'd be like, I know you were convicted of murder 20 years ago. You know, I'd go into the local diner. It's like, you know, I, I know everyone's truth. I get irritated with the New York Times reporting on Vermont. It's always so saccharine. I think, I think it's true that Vermonters maybe don't have an understanding of the full range of <laughs> what goes on in our little hamlets. The way I see Vermont, based on my years as a criminal defense attorney, is we're a very punitive state. We cast a very wide net in terms of what we prosecute here. We actually don't have much crime. and we Our incarceration rate goes up and up and up. There's a class of people we're very happy. Again, when I say we, I'm talking about the powers that be, the power structure, is very happy to tell them how to live their lives, make them jump through a lot of hoops. We're very comfortable with mass incarceration, and it's it's a very classist thing in my mind. And it's uh, it's seen. I think that if middle class people were treated the way we treat the 
average criminal defendant, you know, the mass massive people that are criminal defendants in the state, they wouldn't tolerate it. And I think when it, when people who have a kid who gets in some trouble or they get, you know, somehow they get ensnared, I think they're shocked to see how arbitrary and mean-spirited some of this is. It's expensive and it's incredibly time-consuming. So, uh, and that's something that I hear, especially again from my private clients, people who haven't been in the system whose son got in some kind of trouble. People are flabbergasted and angry that it takes so long to reach an outcome to a case, to a criminal case. And that if you are cited to appear in court at 12.30 on Thursday, which is the typical arraignment date in Washington County, that you will show up at 12.30 as well every other person who's been cited in the last, you know, whatever time frame. Um, and they, they may, you know, depending on how things are going, if they were there at 12.30, they may not get out until you know, two thirty, three o'clock. Good luck if you have a job, because if you've been charged with a crime, there are not too many employers that are going to let you have the amount of time off that you need just to have your day, unless you plead guilty. Because if you're willing to plead guilty, you can do it that day. So you only had to take one day off for two hours, two and a half hours. Then you're done. And you, you've been convicted and you have a permanent criminal record and some kind of penalty but you can get it done that day. For some people, that is more important than having their lawyer suss out whether there are any constitutional problems with the prosecution of the case or whether they might even be innocent. And so that's we see that a lot. And a lot of the cases are made, especially drug cases. They're, they're, they're made, as they say. So, and then when you deal with federal court where there are sentencing guidelines... You know, so if you have six ounces of coke and you have two prior convictions or no prior convictions, it's like a, it's like a tax code. You know, you're going to get this amount of time, and only if the prosecutor wants to cut you a break by you know reducing the charge or something, you know, or you rat someone else out, is the result going to be anything other than some draconian, horrible sentence? I don't want to be part of that system. I just don't want to be part of a system where my job is to legitimize crushing people. And that's what a lot of criminal defense has turned into. They need a lawyer to put this guy in jail for eight years. I mean, they can't do it without a defense lawyer. So, you know, okay, Mr. Rubin, would you like to represent, you know, uh, Harrison Smith here from Springfield, Massachusetts, who came up here because he was somebody's nephew and uh, had no money and no job in Springfield, and someone said uh, to him, uh, you want to make uh, 500 bucks carrying this bucket of cocaine up on a bus? And he said he's never had, you know, hadn't had 500 bucks in his pocket in ye- ever. And he says, okay. And all of a sudden, he's facing four years in jail. I don't, I don't want to be part of that. We've cast a very wide net, criminalized a lot of behavior. We find no wrong too small to be punished. We've we incarcerate a lot of people. I think a lot of the, a lot of it can be laid at the feet of states' attorneys who think this is what people want. David Kidney, my former partner, had the best answer. He said, "If we funded prisons the way we fund, reverse the way we fund prisons and fund schools, have prisons funded with local, but you know, locally, and have local, that states' attorneys would be running on how few people they send to prison, as opposed to how many they send to prison." And that would probably solve the whole thing. 
Chapter 6, Closing Statements The longer I practice and the older I get, I'm, I'm a much more integrated person. There's less of Kelly, the trial attorney at work, and Kelly at home. It's not always pleasant. It's not always the a person you want to have dinner with every night. <laughs> that that person I'm becoming, that sort of unified personality. Um, what it is is that the job wears me out, right? It's the weight of the job that I take home or I take into my personal life that affects the people around me, you know. I was in the trenches for 32 years, I think. I started young. And that was enough. I, I, I don't want to go back to an active trial. I'm not saying I would never go into a courtroom again or anything like that, but I had enough. What's the impact been? The cases were stressful, but that was only part of it. The real problem was just time management. I have 10 minutes to do this. I have 15 minutes to do this. I have two hours to do this. I have to leave here by then or else. You know, having to stop to get gas when I hadn't figured that into my day could like ruin everything. I think it took over all the stress of the job. It's like, took a lot out of me. I am passionate about mountain biking and trying cases. They both kind of affect me the same way. You know, I get... I've got a great case with great facts and a, and, a, and a worthy adversary and a good judge, you know, like, woo, right? <laughs> like, bring it on. Let's go. This is a good week. <laughs> but it's not necessarily healthy. You know, I mean, I think it's, it's definitely selfish. I get my, you know, I get my adrenaline fix from taking up other people's time litigating a case, right? That's... That's really what I do. There's there's a selfishness to that. I think it serves a greater purpose that makes it... I can justify it as being worthy, but, you know, but there's a selfishness to that. I think that the lawyers who actually really enjoy it and they have these outsized personalities and these great track records and it's very colorful and they go to trial and they win and they lose and they understand losing is part of it. Losing is part of this. I mean... And they just are able to shed it off their back. Now, I'm still a good lawyer, still a worthy human being. I still do a good job. You know, that's not me. I'd really, uh, I'm crushed beyond belief when I lose a case. It's like not healthy. (laughs) It's not. One of the things the job has given me over the years is the ability or the necessity to go out into the community and meet people whose lives have intersected with my clients, the clients themselves, their families, their employers, all different people, all different kinds of people because they're all different. My clients have committed all kinds of crimes or they've been injured and they've had all different experiences. So I've had to get off my ass, get in my car and drive up to St. Johnsbury or Walcott or, you know, uh, Vershire or other places or go down to Randolph and meet someone's employer at a small factory and talk to his co-workers about who he is and who his family is and sit in people's living rooms and talk to them about their lives and their experiences and meet their grandmothers and their children and walk into homes where there's no heat except for wood stoves and poor people and middle-class people in ways that made me really understand where I'm living and what I'm, <laughs> and what I'm part of, right? And that, but that's uh, 
that's why I'm here. That's kind of what I defined about why I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted that that kind of connection with people. You know, so this job has enabled me to have those connections, not only with the people, but the places in which they live. So I just remember that Clifford Messier case that I mentioned up in the Northeast Kingdom. And I, I remember driving up into the... Because all of the witnesses were all over Orleans County and Craftsbury and Orleans and Coventry and Irisburg and places like that. And it was a lot of the work I did was in the winter. It was in, you know, November, December, January, February. Talk about bleak. I mean, people don't come to Vermont in November and March. I mean, they don't understand. You know, as my wife says, what do we live in? Why do we, you know, what's this about? You know, it's so horrible here. And I I just remember driving up, you know, in mud season into, you know, back roads in Irisburg to go to some broken down farmhouse and I loved it. I just loved it. I loved it. You've been listening to Dan Seaton, Kelly Green, Scott Williams, Richard Rubin, and Carrie DeWolf. If you have a comment on the show, I would love to hear it. Just go to the show page on my website, which is rumblestripvermont.com. If you want to make a donation, that would also be great. Um, There's a donate button on the website. Your donations keep this show going and put gas in my car. I'll be back soon with a new show. This is Erica Heilman. Thanks a lot for listening.